0: Thanks for joining the Hague Mennonite Church Podcast. We are a small and friendly congregation in Hague, Saskatchewan. Here you will find our weekly messages and we hope you will be encouraged and blessed. Let's get it started. Okay, so grace and peace to you, which I think are two things that we, everyone needs, the world needs, and Jesus gives to us. We are, as you know, working our way through the book of Acts, and we've come to a major shift now in the focus of the book, because up until this point, Luke's narrative more or less has been focused on the 12 apostles. a couple of chapters, we're going to hear about two of the new ministers, or as some people would call them, deacons, appointed by the church. And after we hear about these two ministers, We're going to be introduced to a brand new hero who is going to take us to the very end of the book. So things for the church that are about to get difficult, they are about to get painful, but they're about to be very good. To remind you, the last time time the church appointed seven guys, seven uh, people to deacon tables so that the apostles could better deacon the word, if you remember all that. The first of those new ministers was a man named Stephanos. We call him Stephen. A man we were told was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So we're in uh, Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 8. And it reads, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Remember, Stephen was appointed to distribute aid to the widows. But we already see right away, as soon as he's introduced, um, he's doing a lot more than working at the tables. Luke already made a point of telling us earlier in the chapter that Stephen was spirit-filled, and it looks like his calling goes beyond that appointment as a minister, somebody to look after the charitable distribution. And that's actually kind of ironic when you think about it, because Stephen was put in charge of the tables So that the apostles would be free to preach the word. And what does it look like Stephen is doing here? Now, it doesn't explicitly say that he's preaching the word, but that same language that we see in this passage is used to describe the apostles' ministry signs and wonders. What that tells us is Stephen, through the Holy Spirit, he is performing miracles. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit is when the Holy Spirit equips someone with a gift or a sign for a specific calling or ministry. And in this case, the Holy Spirit is providing signs and wonders to prove the heavenly authority of the gospel. And so we see that the empowerment of signs and wonders, it's now gone beyond the 12 apostles. It's for Jesus's wider group of disciples as well. And we can think back, if we even think back to Pentecost, it seems like the empowering of the spirit that happened at Pentecost was for more than just the 12, but we haven't seen anyone other than the apostles take on a ministry like this. And we know that with signs and wonders, it's accompanied with the gospel. It's the signs and wonders which give the gospel its authority, which which prove it in action as Stephen teaches it in words. So we assume that he is preaching as well. But it gets even better than the fact that this has now gone beyond the apostles, because not only is Stephen not an apostle, but if you remember, he's a Hellenist. He's a culturally Greek Jew. It is remarkable for us that the Holy Spirit is now empowering people outside of the Twelve and even people not from traditional Jewish culture. I have have to do a little aside here. If you don't know what I mean by Hellenist because you missed last Sunday, I strongly encourage you to go and check out last Sunday's sermon where I explain the terms Jew, Hellenist, and Gentile. It's right at the beginning of the sermon. You can find the video on our Facebook page. It's on YouTube. But these are important New Testament terms. They're going to continue to be important. They're going to keep coming up. And so I think we just need to do the work and get them down so I don't have to explain them every time. But what we see is Stephen is full of grace and power, and he's performing signs and wonders, which we can safely assume included the word. And because he is ministering like the apostles, we can rest assured that things are about to get complicated for him, just like it was for the apostles. Verse 9, doesn't take long. Then, some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. So, we get another good list of terms, right? At face value, I think what we can easily say is it looks like a whole bunch of different people are disputing with Stephen. They're not happy with his ministry. And so that begs a few questions. Who are these people? Because I don't think Luke would tell us where all of them are from for no reason. And even before we get to that, before we get to the identity of these people, it's worth covering, like, what is a synagogue? What does that mean? Synagogue is ironically a Greek word. It's not a Hebrew word. It literally means, if you take the two parts of it, it means together Britain. So it sort of means meeting place. And in first century Israel, there were synagogues scattered amongst all of the cities and towns. They performed local Jewish religious ceremonies. They they allowed for Torah reading, for worship, and for prayer. But they also functioned as a town hall. So if you try to equate a synagogue one for one with a church, that's not quite how it works. Really what a synagogue was, is it was the center of Jewish life in any given town and it's always worth remembering there was no sacrifice so you couldn't fully uh, you couldn't fully celebrate the holidays at your local synagogue you had to go to the temple to do that. So the first group disputing with Stephen they're called the synagogue of the freedmen. What does that mean? It means they are men who were freed. This is a synagogue made up of a community of freed slaves. There was a massive number of Jews who were enslaved by the Roman general Pompey in 63 BC. That's more than 90 years before our story today. And scholars think it's quite possible that this synagogue of the freedmen is a whole synagogue, a community center and worship center, which is made up of the descendants of these Jews who were enslaved and they've since been freed. After this, we get a list of places. So it sounds like the perfect time for a map. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's my map. I like this one. So first we have the Cyrenians. Cyrenians were from Cyrene. Here. A city in northern Africa in what is today modern-day Libya. I'm then have a picture from Cyrene. We can do a bit of a world tour. There it is built on the hillside. It looks absolutely beautiful, so really cool. You can see some of the Greek pillars are still standing there. The next group we have are Alexandrians. They were naturally from Alexandria, which is a great city in Egypt, and it was a major Jewish center already for hundreds of years. You can see Alexandria right down there. For you Bible nerds, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it was produced by Jewish scholars in Alexandria. There's some of the ruins of Alexandria. Uh, Roman Emperor Diocletian erected that gigantic, horrible pillar right in the middle of everything because that's what Romans did. At one point, there was a statue of him up there, but I guess I got lost. And then we have Cilicia, which was a province in the northeastern Mediterranean, which you can see right here. The Roman capital of Cilicia was Tarsus, which was actually Paul's hometown, so... Paul came from what we would call modern-day Turkey. And uh, this is a cool picture from Cilicia. Even all over today in Israel, you'll, find, you'll see these black basalt roads. Uh, the Romans built these everywhere. These were their highways because basalt is tough, tough, tough. And there are stretches of miles where the roads like this are still intact with just the odd stone missing here and there. So well-constructed over the period of 2,000 years. And finally, we have Asia. But when the Bible talks about Asia, it doesn't mean exactly what we think of as Asia. We think of, like, everything in the East as being Asia. But as you can see here, Asia was actually a Roman province on the west side of modern-day Turkey. So this is a Roman province which included Ephesus, from where the letter to the Ephesians was written, or Colossae, to whom the Colossians was, was written, And it even included the ruins of ancient Troy. So this was a really rich place. And here's a picture. I would love to go there someday. Here's a picture of Ephesus. Their uh, cardo, their main street is still intact. And that's a a marble road that ran all the way through the city. Which, man, I want to go there. Rach, can we go there? (laughs) She says, yes, I saw it. So maybe this is a little bit unfair because we can't get into all of the details, but can anybody hazard a wild guess as to what binds all these places together? They're all over the Mediterranean world, but what could you guess that they have in common? They're all Hellenists. These are all Greek cities. And if you're wondering why there's Greek cities all over North Africa and everywhere in the world, you can thank Alexander the Great. What this tells us is the reason Luke includes this list isn't just so we can look at these pretty pictures, it's because Luke wants us to know that Stephen is being disputed by, Greek, by Jews from Greek cities. They're all Hellenists. And what's more, scholars even believe that the freedmen would have, would have also been largely Hellenized because when they were made slaves, they were slaves to Greeks and Romans. What is probably going on is that two or three of the big, powerful Hellenist synagogues in Jerusalem have taken note of Stephen, and they've directly gone after him. What what is happening is, a Hellenist, Stephen, is empowered by the Holy Spirit, and now it's his fellow Hellenists who oppose him and attack him. And it's very interesting, disputed here, when, when it says that they disputed with him, It's the same word in Greek used when the authorities would nonstop harass Jesus as he was ministering. It's the same kind of a dispute. But, verse 10, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. What are the qualifications for the men selected to serve at the tables from last time? There's three of them, two or three, depending on how you count it. Good reputations, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. So just like Jesus with the Pharisees or the Sadducees in the Gospels, which we covered every line, it was nonstop disputing, these Hellenists also cannot contend with Stephen's wisdom. The arguments aren't going well for them. They're probably in the same way the Sadducees and Pharisees were, setting traps starting disputes, trying to accuse Stephen of something, and it's going nowhere for them. And this is just like Jesus said in Matthew 10. We, we read this just recently, and it's worth repeating. Jesus said, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. I love repeating this because what we're seeing in the book of Acts is essentially Jesus' promise he made to the disciples lived out. That is exactly the position where Stephen is right now. The Hellenist synagogues, they see one of their own preaching Jesus, and they come out against him in force. But the spirit of the Father in him is wiser than his opponents, and it speaks through Stephen. And just as Luke told us, right, he is full of the spirit. God is able to use him and speak through him. And so let's think about that for just a moment Because I I don't want you to imagine Stephen winning debates and winning these heated arguments and stirring up the crowd. Because that's not how Jesus did it exactly. Jesus didn't get into the traps. Again and again, he would address the heart. And his opponents were never prepared for that. They were never prepared for their trap question to be about them. Jesus used all opposition, every trap, every contention, as the perfect opportunity to show people their need for a savior. And I say this as a caution. And I think we need to read Stephen the same way because I believe that there are too many voices in the church today telling us that we need to be angry about everything. That we're somehow going to prove our faithfulness and our zeal for God through our anger. How about instead we choose grace and power, like Stephen and like Jesus? How about instead we answer the heart of people who need a Savior and don't worry about winning every argument? Our calling is to win people for the kingdom, not win arguments. God is faithful. When we are focused on loving our enemy, he will provide us with the wisdom to be a good witness. We can trust him for that. But tragically, in our story today, Stephen's issues with the Hellenists, they don't end with these arguments and with these disputes. Verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So these Hellenist synagogues, they stir up men to accuse Stephen of blasphemy. Specifically, they say he's blasphemed Moses and God. And this is weird. Putting Moses before God in this list is weird. But Luke is doing us doing this to make a point, I think. If someone has blasphemed Moses, what that means is the suggestion is the person has somehow contradicted or insulted the Torah. And again, the Torah is the fundamental book of Jewish identity. It's the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses. So what it looks like is the Hellenists are offended by Stephen's interpretation of the Torah above everything else. And we get a few more details about that later. It's really interesting. The historian Josephus, he says that blasphemy against Moses was considered a capital crime in Israel. So if you denigrate the Torah or if you teach the Torah that people think contradicts Moses, you could be killed for it. And so things are escalating for Stephen. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. Just like Jesus said would happen before governors and kings. So not only have the Hellenists instigated a few people to accuse him of blasphemy, But the Hellenists have now managed to stir up the crowds and the elders and the scribes. And you remember, when we see terms like elders and scribes, it means the Sanhedrin. So finally, the Sanhedrin has Stephen arrested. And once again, ad nauseum, we're in this place where there is a Christian standing before the Sanhedrin in their semicircle. And actually, Caiaphas is about to start asking questions again. But Stephen's situation is a little bit different than it was for the Twelve. Do you remember, why didn't the temple guard rearrest the apostles by force? They were scared of the crowds. Whose side are the people on this time? They're on the Hellenist side, they're on the Sanhedrin side. So if the Sanhedrin doesn't need to be afraid of the crowds anymore, what does that mean for Stephen? And what is that going to mean for the church exactly? Verse 13. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. First thing, you notice they call him this man again? I pointed that out last time when Caiaphas called Jesus this man. It was meant as an insult. So we can only piece together what Stephen was preaching based on their accusation against him. But it actually tells us a lot because we've seen these accusations before and we are going to see them again. They accused Stephen first of speaking against the temple, speaking against this place, and second of speaking against the law, the Torah. These two together then are the foundation of Jewish life. They're the two core concepts. The holy place where God dwells, And his holy word, his instruction given to Israel through Moses. So these false witnesses tell the Sanhedrin that Stephen has said that Jesus will destroy the temple and then will change the Torah. And if you remember, if this sounds familiar, in Matthew, Jesus faced exactly the same accusation about the temple. We've seen this all before. And there's a reason why I spent so many Sundays, so many weeks studying Jesus' teachings about what was going to happen to the temple. Because he would be constantly accused, and so would his followers, of something untrue that he never said. So we need to understand what he did say. What Jesus taught about the temple is fundamental to understanding the New Testament. And I think human history. It's a big deal. The short version is this. Jesus never said he would destroy the temple, but he warned the authorities, if they continued on their current path, that the temple would be destroyed. There's lots of irony in our passage today, and here the tragic irony is that a few decades later, after this happens, an unrepentant, a messiah Sanhedrin will rebel against Rome, and their actions will destroy the temple. As for the Torah, do we have any indication in the book of Acts that the apostles don't keep the law? Have we ever seen any hint of that? Have they ever even been accused of that directly? There's nothing. In fact, we know that the apostles, they worshipped at the temple daily. So if they were outright disregarding Moses' teaching, if they weren't wearing their tzitzit, if they weren't praying at the designated prayer times, how is it that they could be at the temple every day worshipping with all the other God-fearing Jews? And that tells me that the apostles, they were Torah-observant Jews. They kept the law. And so these accusations are totally false. Jesus told the Pharisees, who sit on the Sanhedrin, Jesus told them that he would send his followers as witnesses against the authorities. This is from Matthew 23. And Jesus said, The authorities will beat and kill Jesus's witnesses until those authorities, that Sanhedrin, are guilty of all blood that was ever shed on earth. It's interesting to go back and read Jesus' words again, Matthew 23. I was reminded that's why nobody has Jesus' quotations up on their living room wall. He was very frank because he was trying to save people from God's wrath. And what's happening is Jesus will give the Sanhedrin every last opportunity to repent of the path, which will lead to Israel's destruction, the temple's destruction, and 2,000 years of exile. He will even send men like Stephen to warn them, knowing that Stephen will suffer at their hands. This is Jesus' love for his enemies, that he tells them exactly their condition and then does everything he possibly can to save them. Verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I, may, I mentioned a little bit about this before, but it, it lines up. Uh, when I was living in Israel, I worked at a warehouse, which was run by a follower of Jesus, and we distributed uh, food to the poor in the city where we were living. So, I was thinking about this. I I guess I was deaconing at tables. I've done that before. That's exactly what we were doing. And I tell you, when we were distributing this food, I was really good at it. I'm not afraid to brag. Because what we would do, fundamentally, for the majority of the time, is we would take groceries and we would pack them into shopping bags. I have four years of high-pressure, begging experience under Eric Duick and so I was not afraid of anything, and I ran circles around everybody else. <laughs> so I would do this, you know, week to week, whenever I could make it, and at one point, this ministry's director told me that we were going to have a special guest the next time we served, and he didn't tell any of us who it was. So the next time when I was bagging groceries and handing them out to people and and we were praying for people, there was a middle-aged woman there helping me pack the bags. And we worked all day. We worked together for hours. And at the end of the day, all of us volunteers, we sat down for a meal. Now, most of the other volunteers were internationals like me. We were from all over the world. And so this woman, who was clearly an Israeli, she asked all of us why we were doing this. She couldn't quite figure it out. And so one by one, each of us kind of explained to her briefly why we were there. And eventually, I was sitting right next to her. She asked me why I was there. And I remember I didn't say anything profound. I kind of bumbled something about God calling me to serve the Jewish people. Because the trick is, when people ask you that question, what you're doing there in Israel, you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful. I wasn't prepared for the question. But as I was talking, and I don't know what I said, she just stared at me right in the eyes, and she didn't say a word. And after I stopped, she didn't speak. And I didn't know if I had said something wrong, if I had crossed that line, if I offended her. And then she started to weep. And then I really didn't know what I had said. And I don't think it mattered what I had said, because she looked me in the eye and she told me my face was shining. And I found out later that she was the mayor of the city. So here's the thing. We've been talking about for months now what it means to be filled with the Spirit and empowerment of the Spirit. That's what this book is all about. I suggested to you that perhaps this ought to be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And when we talk about it for so long and we see these examples in the scriptures, we can work out in our heads what it must look like to be used by the Spirit. And we can fantasize about being heroes or we can kind of shudder in fear that God may call us to do something crazy or something brave. Either way, we overthink it. Because I was begging canned olives all day. I didn't have anything profound to do there. Anyone could have done my job slower, but they could have done it. And I definitely had nothing profound to say. But I was simply in the place I needed to be, and I was doing the very simple thing God called me to do in Israel, which was to serve people. And the Spirit did a miracle. And that's it. That's it. Stephen's in the same situation. Do you realize Stephen, the famous Stephen martyr, one of the first deacons of the church, He's only been a believer for a few months at best. He's got no special advantages. He does not have years of education. He may have not had time to have all of his doctrine down. He may not have had a good handle of scripture or the Bible. But what he's willing to do is go and serve and obey. So a guy willing to help widows ends up witnessing to his city leaders, in his case and in my case. Stephen stood there before the Sanhedrin and his face was like that of an angel and it shone and it did not shine because of Stephen but it shone because the glory of God was reflected on him. When Moses came down from Sinai he had to wear a veil because his face shone so brightly from being in the presence of God that people were scared of him. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and he revealed his divinity to some of his friends, Matthew writes that his face shone like the sun. To be used, to be empowered, to be useful to the Holy Spirit, it doesn't depend on all of our resources and it doesn't depend on all of our charisma. It depends only and absolutely on the grace of God. When Stephen's face shone to the Sanhedrin, it was not grace for him. It was grace for the Sanhedrin, who though, even though they hated Stephen as they hated Jesus, they were blessed to look on a reflection of the face of God. And when I had my experience, I didn't even notice anything. It was not for me. I had no idea. The mayor was the only one in the room who could see it. It was for her. So you don't need to overthink it. The simple thing is the situation I was in when I was asked the question and the situation Stephen is going to be put in, in which he is going to respond to beautifully and perfectly and lose his life for it, is that we need to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. And we do that with gentleness and respect. And then in that moment of faithfulness, the Holy Spirit will do with us whatever he likes. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen was full of grace and power. I love the Hebrew word for grace, chesed, which which so often is translated loving kindness. God says he's full of chesed. Scripture only describes one other person in the New Testament of being full of grace. And you can guess who it is. It's the Sunday school answer. Jesus is always the answer. The first thing we're told about Stephen early in the chapter chapter, is that he's full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And that word for full in that case, it means complete. The Holy Spirit has made Stephen complete. And by consequence, Stephen, a new believer, has the qualities of Jesus. He has grace and power. So my message really simply is that God wants to use you, can use you. The only thing Stephen had going for himself is that he was ordinary. But ordinary men and women who reflect, who are obedient to the Holy Spirit, who are obedient to the Lord Jesus, they reflect Jesus' glory. And that is why we pray, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because when we ask for God's will to be done here, he uses us to fulfill it. That's his plan. And that's our greatest joy, that our God who has done so much for us and our Jesus who has saved us even though we were undeserving, who loved us even when we were his enemies, that he uses us to reflect his glory. And so we've spent, what, half an hour overthinking it again this morning. Don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. Be prepared to tell people why you have hope and listen to that still small voice. And just be open to what God will do in your life. And that's how communities change. That's how people are redeemed. And that's why these priests, even on the Sanhedrin, they're coming to faith in the Lord. They can't help it. They can't help it when they look upon his face. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are great to us. You are so good to us and you are so kind we have hope and we have life and we know there's redemption coming. And Lord, we have the joy of the promise that one day our faith will be made made sight and that we will see Jesus face to face and that we will see his face, which your word says shines like the sun. And so God, I pray that that hope for that day of seeing him and hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, it will give us joy for the journey. And I pray that that joy would spill out in whatever way the Holy Spirit sees fit so that people can ask us, why are you here? Why are you doing this? And we can give you glory. Father, please be at work in us. We know that our families are hurting. We know that our community is hurting. We certainly know that this world is hurting. And so we pray that we would be the humble, small people, that there may be less of us and more of you in our lives and that in ways we don't even see in the smallest and gentlest way that people would encounter you and be saved. We thank you so much for the privilege it is to be your church, to be your people, and that we can be a family, and that this is a family which we will have for eternity, that there's no end to this. This is good, and it lasts. And for that, we give you all the praise and all the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. (music) Thanks so much for listening to the Hague Mennonite Church Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to our website haegmennonitechurch.ca. Until the next time.